How many of you have a morning routine? Your routine type of people. Your alarm goes off, you throw it across the room. No, maybe you're past that stage. That's the teenage stage, college stage. You shut it off, you stumble out of bed, what's the first thing you do? How many is the coffee pot? <laughs> Some people it's the bathroom, but you know, it depends on the order, it depends on where you're at in life. Um, you get a shower, you get breakfast, prepare for the day. Um, you've been doing the same routine for years and years and years, and it's like you're just on autopilot. The alarm goes off, your mind and your body knows exactly what to do, and you just follow through with it, without even having to think about it. It becomes a ritual, to the point that if something goes out of order, it might just throw the rest of your day off, and the whole day just be kind of out of whack because something didn't go right in the morning. Uh, we all have little rituals that we go through in life. Uh, we see it around us, maybe it's an after work ritual, maybe it's a ritual, ladies say you got to wait you clean things, maybe it's the way you do dishes. Ever watched a baseball game and watched the routines and the rituals that the the pitchers go through and the batters go through. It's kind of amusing at times. You know, sometimes it's superstitious. They all got to wear the right pair of socks or other things that we won't mention. Um, they've got these rituals that they do, and, and they go through those, and it's just one of those things. Um, they do them without even thinking. How many of you would say there's been times in your life where worship has become a ritual? Your walk with God has become routine. Where it's just kind of on autopilot. Read the same, you pull your Bible out, you read the same place at the same time. By the way, that's not a bad thing. Those habitual things that helps us to maintain the pattern. But if we're not careful, we can get into a rut. And sometimes when we're in the middle of this, our mind drifts away and you finish reading and you don't even really remember what you were reading. Or you're praying and you get done and you don't even really remember who it was that you just prayed for. It happened in our personal worship. It can happen in our corporate worship as well. We come to church and you know right where you sit. Some of us are creatures of habit, right? And we've got our spots, and we know where, and, and Lord help the visitor that might sit there ahead of us. <laughs> this church is pretty good about that. I've never seen somebody go and tap them on the shoulder and say, you're in my spot. And that's good, because if that does happen, there'll be a message catered towards you probably. So I do that with the teenagers. I'm not above doing that here. So. Um, but we come into church, and we sit where we sit, and we know when to stand, and we know when to sit, and we know the routine. And sometimes in the process of that, we can go on autopilot, and we can miss what's really going on. We didn't stand at the beginning of that last song. Did you notice that? Did that throw you off? We started halfway through. Can we do that in a Baptist church? And we did. Hopefully it'll be okay. But this idea that sometimes we just get stuck in this routine, and, and you know, sometimes even in the middle of a message, our mind can drift away, and then we snap back to reality, and we wonder how much we missed, and really hope that we didn't doze off. And we really, really hope we, if we dozed off, we didn't snore. Right? We're on autopilot. It's an easy thing to do. And you know, folks, the same thing can happen when it comes to communion. This church has decided that we'll celebrate the communion service once a month, the first Sunday of the month. And so it happens regularly. It's the same Sunday of the month. We come, it's the same setup up front. We walk through things pretty much the same way. Why? Because it's scripted. The Bible tells us how God wants us to do this. But it can be difficult from a pastoral perspective to try to keep it fresh every time. Uh, but we don't want it to become mundane. We don't want it to become something that we just do because that's what we do. It shouldn't be just a ritual. And today is Communion Sunday, and I've been thinking about this a little bit. Why do we do what we do? 
Why do we celebrate communion the way that we do it? By the way, what we do here on Sunday is not the same as everybody else. There's a lot of churches that will call it communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and it doesn't look like the way we do it here. So why do we do what we do? Is it just a ritual? Is it just something that we do for the sake of doing it? Well, I hope not. Um, there are significant differences in the way we practice this ordinance and the way other people do. I trust that today as we walk through this passage here in Matthew chapters 26, that it will help move us past this being stuck in a rut, this idea of a ritual, and help us understand why we really do this. I titled the message, Moving from Ritual to Reality. Folks, the communion service is a blessed reality. Uh, what Jesus Christ did for us and our ability to memorialize that and to celebrate it is a really important thing. And so we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to celebrate it and observe the ordinance today as well at the tail end. Uh, and I trust that it will be an encouragement to you. And maybe answer some questions. Maybe it will raise some questions. I'm not sure. Um, as I study this passage out, I think we're going to continue the idea tonight. Because there's a lot that I'm not going to be able to get to this morning. We'll start, first of all, with the setting. For Jesus and the disciples, it had been a busy week. <laughs> If you've read through the gospel accounts, you know exactly how busy it's been. Jesus has been out of the area for a while. He's made his way back towards Jerusalem because the Passover is approaching. Um, he goes to Bethany and he eats supper there with Mary and with Martha and with Lazarus. And it's at that point that Mary breaks this expensive bottle of ointment and anoints his feet and his head, I think both there at that time, uh, in symbolic preparation for his burial. A couple days later, we hear the joyous cries of the triumphal entry. Picture that. They stand in stark contrast to the hateful cries that come just a few days later. What a contrast between those two. We see Jesus Christ on the outskirts of the city shedding sorrowful tears as he weeps over Jerusalem. He's about to be crucified, and he's concerned about the people that are going to do it. And he's sorrowful over their lack of faith. We see Jesus for a second time cleansing the temple and casting out those that are buying and selling the money changers. And the people profiting most from those were the, the priests. <laughs> and so he kind of ticked them off again. He's pretty good at that. And uh, this time, they don't take it so lightly. And the next day is an intense day of testing as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes all conspire to try to trip Jesus up. And if you read the different accounts, it's just one after another, after another, after another, as they're questioning him and they're trying to put forth their best ideas to make him say something that he shouldn't say. So they can say, aha! Now we have the right to crucify you. That would been a tough day. Well, they fail in their attempts because Jesus is God and he knows the end from the beginning and he answered all their questions with wisdom. And so now they have a concerted effort to destroy him. And this time they're serious. But this time, it's Jesus' time to die. All the other times when he escaped out of their hands, remember those passages in the book of John? It wasn't his time. His time had not yet come. But at this point, his time had come. And so we see Judas stepping into the, the picture here. He fulfills the wishes in a way that the, the scribes and Pharisees couldn't have, couldn't have asked for a better way to do it. And he contracts to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that takes place just before what we're going to talk about here. So that's the setting. That's what's leading up to it. And now we look at the Passover celebration itself. And we'll pick it up in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 26. It says, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? The disciples come to Jesus. It's the first day of unleavened bread. They say, it's the day of the Passover. Hey, we need to celebrate. Where are we going to do this? Do you notice the irony here that this is Jesus Christ? He is the creator of heaven and earth and everything that is herein. And what does he not have? 
He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a room to go and celebrate the Passover in. The scriptures say that he doesn't have a place to lay his head. And so he has to go in and borrow a place, find a room, and be able to use that in order to, to celebrate this with his disciples. And so Jesus says in verse 18, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. Would you like to be the disciples with that order? Go into town and find a guy. <laughs> I'm thinking it's specific. Um, is this somebody Jesus knows? Do the disciples know him? Is this like a cold call? <laughs> um, hey, by the way, we're, we're going we're gonna to come and use your upper room, and it's not a question. Jesus doesn't say, ask you if it's okay. The master says, we're going to use your room. The disciples know enough about Jesus, and they've had other experiences by now that they don't question. They go and they obey. They do exactly what, what Jesus told them to do. And so they go and begin to prepare. It says that, verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them. They made ready the Passover. So what was involved with that? They got the lamb and they took it to the temple where the lamb was slain. They, they prepared the, the lamb and they roasted it. They got the bitter herbs and they got the other things that were incorporated into this meal. The, the different utensils and, the, and the, the cups and the bowls and all the things that needed to be done. And they set up the room. They had it all prepared and ready to go. And when that happened, it said, verse 20, Now when even was come, he sat down with the twelve. So they sat down and they began to enjoy this meal. The cup is being passed. The food is being eaten. Um, there's a process of the Hallel Psalms that are being quoted and sung through the process of this feast. And I think there's a sense of anticipation with the disciples. Now, this is different than the other Passovers that they've celebrated. Now, there's more going on here. And I may be all wet here, but I think they foresee a king taking his rightful throne. I think they foresee an end to the subjection to the Roman Empire. I think they think that's going to begin here at Passover. But Jesus kind of changes their mindset a little bit. Look at the next phrase. How's this for you know, dinner conversation? <laughs> he said as he did eat, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. In the middle of dinner, he brings this up. If you have a Thanksgiving dinner and all your relatives are gathered together, are there certain topics that you avoid? I think all of us have situations like that. Religion and politics, maybe you're just not even going to go there. Maybe there's other things. Um, but this dinner, as they're thinking about Passover and about Egypt and about the freedom and what, what freedom might be coming, Jesus kind of changes gears here with this conversation. One of you is going to betray me. I think there was shocked silence in the room. I don't think they knew what to say. But then that, that silence turns to sorrow. And they say... They were exceeding sorrowful in verse 22, and they began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it me? Someone in this group, I mean, I can't even imagine that somebody would betray you, but somebody in this group of 12 that's walked with you and talked with you and lived with you, I can't imagine that. But notice where they looked first. They looked in. You know, we, we talk about the disciples, and we talk about their quarrels one with another, and sometimes I think maybe we build that up bigger than it is. I only see two instances in the scriptures where it talks about that. Um, but here, instead of looking, I bet it's you, I bet it's you, I bet it's you, they look inside. Lord, is it me? Could I be the one that would do something like this? Well, Jesus says to them, in verse 23, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not yet been born. Wow, what a pronouncement. And then Judas is in the midst here at this point too, and he has to say face. All the disciples have asked, is it I? So what does Judas do? Is it I? He uses a different word. He doesn't use Lord. He uses the word rabbi, teacher, 
Not an intimate, close term. Uh, is it me? Am I the one? And what does Jesus say? You have said. And I tend to believe that Judas slipped out at this point. Uh, we'll talk more about that tonight. I don't know that it's a hill that I would die on, but I think Judas left at this point. John says that he left after he was given, given the sop, um, and that, that's part of the Passover celebration. Uh, so I think he left. It doesn't really make a huge difference either way. Uh, but I, I, I picture that happening. So that's the setting. That's what's going on. The week leading up to it, and now the Passover celebration. And now Jesus makes a shift. This would be the second point. There's a shift. There's a transition that now takes place from the Passover celebration to something that's new and something that's unique. Something that they haven't seen before or heard about before. And what happens next forms the basis for our communion service that we enjoy and that we celebrate every month. In verse 26 it says, And as they were eating, so they're wrapping up the meal, they're still in the process of eating, it says, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. That's different from the way the meal had progressed to this point. <clears throat> Jesus took the bread. It, it, here it says that he blessed it. If you look a little closer in your, in your Bible, you'll notice the word it is in italics. Notice that? It's not part of the original. It's supplied to help to be a help. Um, and I think it's actually caused more confusion than it has help. Uh, it's the idea of, of he gave a blessing. And I believe he's blessing God. I don't think he's blessing the bread. Uh, it's a blessing. It's, it's got, and look down and it talks about the cup. It says he gave thanks. Those are two different ideas there, and they, they tie together. Um, the blessing doesn't refer to the bread, but to the God who graciously gave the gift. And this is significant. Are there people out there and are there groups and religions out there that make a big deal out of the blessing of the bread in the cup? Absolutely. And it's blessing this, and then as the priest blesses it, what happens? Supposedly it turns into the body and the blood of Christ. Where do they get that idea? Part of it is from this idea right here. Um, the other Gospels don't bring it out quite the same way. Um, they do talk about it being more of a blessing. And so I think it's significant. I think blessed indicates an act of thanksgiving to God, not an act whereby God transforms the bread into the actual body of Christ. Does that make sense? And I think the words here are significant. But they took that bread, and he took it, and then he broke it. How long does bread have to sit on your counter before you can break it? I'm trying to get you thinking here a little bit. What's the significance of the fact that he broke it? It's the fact that it's unleavened. It doesn't have the yeast, it hasn't risen, it hasn't gotten called where you could break it apart or tear it or cut it. Right? It's more of a cracker-type consistency, and so he broke it. That's why we use a bread that is fitting to that, that concept as well. It's unleavened, it's a cracker-like consistency. And so he broke it, he took it, he blessed uh, the Lord, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he instructed them to take it and eat it, and then he says, this is my body. We'll talk more about that tonight. This is my body. That's a metaphor. And we'll talk about that in the explanation here in just a little bit. Well, he moves on as we're working through the sequence. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but let's just get the order in the sequence. Verse 27, and he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink ye all of it. He took the cup. It doesn't mention in this verse specifically what's in the cup. It does tell us in the next verse down. Verse 29, I say, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's in the cup? It's the fruit of the vine. That's, a, that's an interesting word. Uh, there was a word that could be either alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And this is the word that talks about the fruit of the vine. It's grape juice. And that's what he had in the cup. And that he took that. And the Bible says he gave thanks. And he passed it around to the disciples. He gave it to them. 
And then we see in the passage here, it says, he says, to drink ye all of it. And I'm not 100% sure on this either. Uh, but in Mark chapter 14, it says, and they all drank of it. I really think that's the indication here. Um, is it the idea that they had to drain the cup? Every last drop had to be out of there? Uh, where do we get that idea? If this, if this blood really, if this juice really turned into the blood of Christ, we don't want to waste any of it. Drink ye all of it. But it could also be, drink ye all of it. All of you drink of this cup. That's the indication I think that he's trying to bring out here. And Mark carries that forward. And so all the disciples, every one of you that is here celebrating this with me, Jesus has said, I want you all to partake. It's important. I don't want you to miss out on this. Not because it has some special <laughs> salvation power, but because this is important. And he wanted them all to be a part of that, of that process. And then he says, this is my blood in the New Testament, shed for many for the remission of sins. There's like five messages right in that phrase. There's so much there packed into that. We'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. This is my blood. And then we see a promise. Something to look forward to. Jesus had just told his disciples several times over the last week and a half that he was going to die. That he was going to be buried. And they're struggling with that. But notice this promise that he gives. And look, it's in the form of a promise. It says, I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You know what? I'm not going to drink it anymore with you on earth. But there's coming in the day. We'll be in heaven together. We'll be drinking of this cup around another feast table. It's going to happen again, but not here on this earth. But what a, what, a, what a promise for those disciples to understand. Well, then it says in verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. They ended with a psalm, and probably one of the Hallel Psalms that they sing with the Passover, and then they were dismissed to the Mount of Olives. And so that's the, that's the plan. That's what changed here. That, that was the, um, the, 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 the scenario that Jesus set forth. But I think number three, we see a symbolism. And that's what I want to focus on here for a few minutes today. Um, why do we do communion the way we do? What do these elements symbolize? Each aspect of the service is important, and it's good to think about why we do it so it doesn't become a ritual. So let's look first of all with the bread. What do we know about the bread? Well, first of all, we see that it's unleavened bread. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. How do we know that? Think about the connection now to Passover. The very first verse we read, this is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What did the Jewish people do on the first day as they're preparing for the Passover? Same thing they did back in Exodus. They'd go through their houses. They'd try to find any bits of leaven that they could find. And they'd purge their homes of the leaven. They'd get it all out of there. And if you know from Scripture, leaven is generally a picture of sin or evil. That's, that's the picture that God gives for us. Not every time is it referring to that, but the majority of times it is. So, leaven is a picture of sin, and we need to, we need to remove it. Uh, so it's a picture of the sinless Lamb of God. The bread was unleavened. Why not use a nice loaf of homemade bread? Wouldn't that taste good? Why not have a buffet? Would you like rye? Would you like sourdough? There's some churches that almost do that. There are a lot of churches that will use a risen loaf, and it has the yeast in it. And they're not being true to the scriptures when they do that. Um, you know, it's something I hadn't really thought of until I was working through this is, do we need to have a gluten-free option? You know, maybe that's real. That's more of a health type consideration. Could you do something that was unleavened and still a gluten-free type thing? Yeah, that could be done and still, I think, satisfy the requirements here that we see in scripture. So the bread is unleavened bread. Secondly, it's broken bread. It's not torn. It's not cut. Uh, it's broken. Why? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, this is my body which is broken for you. 
It's a picture of the broken body of Jesus Christ. Let's turn back to Isaiah, a couple passages here. Just leave your finger here in, in the book of Matthew. So many correlations with Isaiah and uh, the Gospels. Well, let's just look at a couple verses that remind us about how Jesus' body was broken. Chapter 52, and um, in verse 14 it says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred for the needy man, and his form more than the sons of men. Chapter 53, picking it up in verse 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Was Jesus' body broken in route to the cross and on the cross? Absolutely it was. And you know the story. I don't have to reiterate all of that. It's interesting that Psalm 34, 20 tells us that not a bone of him would be broken, and that came true. His body was broken, but his bones were not. And you remember that part of the story. It's the centurion came out there to break Jesus' legs because the Passover was close. What did he find? Jesus was already gone. He's already dead. And so he pierced his side with the spear and out came out blood and water. Not a bone of him was broken. So we see it was unleavened bread. We see it's broken bread. We see third it was distributed bread. Jesus took the bread and he passed it out to his disciples. He passed it around to them. And that's why we do the same thing here as well. We take the bread. And the servants of the church will, will take it, the deacons and, and trustees, and they'll pass it around. We'll distribute it to everybody. You know, I thought about sometimes maybe it would be beneficial as part of the communion service to actually break it in front as we go. Instead of having it already prepared, take a little bit longer. And think about the body of Christ as we're doing that and actually about that part of the service. I think that could be legitimate. I think it might be an option. So it's unleavened bread, it's broken bread, it's bread that's been distributed, and it's, finally it's symbolic bread. <clears throat> Jesus says, this is my body. Did Jesus really give his disciples of his actual physical body? I've had interactions with people that will find this passage and they'll say, if you truly believe in a literal interpretation of scripture, which we do, right? As, as believers, as as Baptists, as Biblicists, we believe in a literal, a historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. And they'll hold this over our head a little bit and say, if you truly believe in a literal interpretation, then that's what happened here. Well, there's, there's a lot of answers to that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that tonight. But what is going on here? This is a metaphor. You guys remember back to English? 7th grade English, 8th grade English class. Similes and metaphors, remember that? Uh, simile is using like or as, and then metaphor is just, just a comparison. That's what's going on here. Uh, this is a metaphor. And I think the disciples clearly understood what he meant. And you can go back through the Gospel accounts, Old and then the Old and the New Testament, and find many, many examples of metaphor. Do we interpret this literally? Yes. Literally as a <coughs> The way it was intended to be understood. But if you misunderstand these words, and if then if you tie the dots back in with the idea of blessing the bread, you can see how some people might arrive at this conclusion and get to that erroneous doctrine. It doesn't say it here in the book of Matthew, but it does in the book of Luke, and then Paul adds it in the book of Corinthians. We are to eat this bread as a reminder of his broken body. We are to do it in remembrance of him. So that's the symbolism with the bread. There's also symbolism with the cup. I would say that this is juice in the cup. I would say it's unfermented juice. There's no leavening. I think that would apply to this idea made. There's a leavening agent involved with that. This is the fruit of the vine. And I think it's important that it's 100% grape juice. I think that's significant. Um, it's not cranberry 
or it's not a great cocktail, or all these other things. And you may laugh about this, but I was at the store during COVID trying to find juice for our communion services. And it was really hard to find it. And I thought, well, maybe we can use something else. But, you know, you lose the picture. You lose the symbolism when you do that. It's, it's pure juice. I don't think it has to be Welch's. <laughs> we, we don't have to go that far. Okay? Do they have that back then? Is that a Jewish name? I don't think so. Um, but it's juice. It's pure juice. And then Jesus took that cup and he distributed it. And we do a little bit differently here. And I don't think this is a problem. Uh, what did Jesus do in that time period? He took the, the cup. And when he had prayed, he passed it around. And everybody took a drink and rotated it and took a drink and rotated it. I don't know, maybe they did that, maybe they didn't. Um, aren't you thankful that we have individual cups? I think most of us are. Um, and I don't think we're losing significance by doing that. Although there is something to that shared cup. Um, but there's a symbolism here as well. And here Jesus says, this is my blood. You see the metaphor once again. This represents my blood. The original language is just a touch more emphatic than what we see here in English. And you can say it this way. Jesus said, for this is that blood of mine. This is that blood of mine. Okay, what blood? Well, this is the blood that all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. Think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices that have been offered through all of Israel's history. And even before that, Abel offered a blood sacrifice. This is what it's pointing to. This is the blood that all the Passover lambs that had ever been slain through all the years, it's what it pointed to. It's the blood that was about to be poured out in ratification of this new covenant that he talks about, this new testament. It's the blood that was shed, shed for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles alike. It's opening up this whole new door. It's the blood that can indeed provide remission for sins. It's not just a covering, but a complete cleansing from sin. It's that blood. That's significant. Folks, it's powerful enough to not only remove our sin, but the guilt that we often struggle with because of our sin. Have you ever struggled with the idea that what you did was so bad, but yet God still forgave you, but you have a hard time forgiving yourself? I think all of us have been there. Is the blood of Jesus Christ powerful enough to even take care of that? Absolutely it is. Powerful enough to give us a brand new nature, which in turn can grant us victory over every sin that besets us. This is that blood. And we are to take this cup as a reminder of his shed blood, and we are to do it in remembrance of him. I see a third aspect of this symbolism here as well. And this one isn't quite as cut and dry, but I think it's here. And I think it's the idea of examination. When you go to 1 Corinthians 11, what does Paul say? He says, we are to examine ourselves. And after we examine ourselves, so let us eat and so let us drink. Do we see that here in the story in Matthew chapter 26? I think we do. I think we see it in several different ways. First of all, um, when Jesus announced his betrayal, what did the disciples do? They first looked in. Can we draw a comparison there? I think we can. Uh, they first looked in. Lord, is it I? There's personal reflection. Is there something in my heart? And it's a good reminder to us that we need to first look inward as well. We see it in the idea of celebrating the Passover and searching for any hint of leaven in their homes. Can we draw a comparison between them searching their homes and us searching our hearts? We don't want any hint of leaven in their homes. We don't want any hint of sin in our lives. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in this regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 5.
we don't have time to develop the context here, but let's start reading in verse 6. Paul says, your glory is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Why is it important that we remove the leaven from our lives? It doesn't take much to, to, uh, to, to infest the whole. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are un unleavened. For even Christ, here's the connection, even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. That tie between leavening and the, and the Passover sacrifice. And then verse 8, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The idea of this purging of malice and wickedness. Malice is, is I've got something against somebody else. I've got an issue with somebody else, in, either in this church or outside of the church. I've got, a, I've got a, a problem there. I don't want to come to the communion table with that. Wickedness is the idea between me and, and God. Something in my life there. I'm supposed to purge that out. And I'm supposed to worship and come to communion not with wickedness and malice, but with sincerity and with truth. And that's a good reminder. See, the unleavened bread didn't just picture the sinlessness of our Savior. It also indicates the manner in which we should partake of the bread and of the cup. I think we also see that the unleavened bread and the unfermented juice remind us to come to this table with hands and hearts that are free from unconfessed sin. If you take all those ideas together, you can see where Paul would get this thought that he crystallizes and summarizes in, in 1 Corinthians 11, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat and so let him drink of the bread and of that cup. One last aspect of the symbolism here, and I would see that is our purpose. Is there symbolism in the purpose of this? Why, why did they celebrate the Passover? What was the point of that? Uh, the event had long passed. Uh, they weren't worried about a death angel coming to their door and uh, killing their firstborn. Uh, that happened back in Egypt. But it was a memorial. It was a reminder. It was something that they did to remember so they didn't forget how that all came about. And folks, the communion service that we celebrate here together is not to secure some mystical spiritual blessing. It isn't. Um, it's important, but that's not what it does. It's not, as, as, as bad as it sounds, it's not ingesting the body and the blood of Christ. Um, I don't know how they get to that point. Uh, it's as another step towards salvation. If you're depending on what we do here in the next few minutes to get you to heaven, you're going to be disappointed. It doesn't have any salvation bearing at all. That's something that was done when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ on the cross. You turned from your sin and you turned to Jesus and said, forgive me. And you confessed your sins and he came and saved you. Now you have something to celebrate and now you have something to remember. So Paul tells us why we do this. We do it in remembrance of Christ. And yes, I think we're to remember his sufferings. That's important. We are to remember his death on the cross and how horrible that was. And yes, I think we should pause and think about our sin in times like this. And the fact that it was our sins that put him on that cross. That should all be part of this thing that we're thinking about and pondering and remembering. But beyond that, we are to remember him. This do in remembrance of me is personal. We're remembering a person here. Not just how he suffered and how he died, but the person that suffered and the person that died. And folks, when we dwell upon that thought, we can't help but stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned. Have you guys noticed that time and distance cause memory to fade? Have you experienced that in life? Sometimes when it's a hard memory, it's kind of nice that that happens that way. But when it's somebody that you love and maybe you've lost in life, 
and you can't picture their face the way you used to, and you can't hear their voice the way that you used to, that's hard. Because those memories begin to fade, and time does that. Why is it so important that we remember? Well, if Jesus told his disciples that they should do this, he remembered to him, they lived with him. This was a very short period of time from his death to when uh, Paul wrote uh, Christians. If they needed the encouragement to remember, how much more do we, some 2,000 plus years after his death? We need to remember. And so, a song we sang a while back, Lest I Forget. I don't know about you, but life brings in for me so many distractions. There's a hundred things that are vying for my attention. If you have a computer, if you have a phone, maybe it's a thousand things flying for your attention. Maybe it's work, maybe it's home situations, maybe it's the car isn't running. There's, there's so many things that on a daily basis attack our minds and are at the forefront of our minds. And what happens? It pushes some of these things to the back of our mind. It's not that they're gone, they're still there. They're just not front and center anymore. And so that's this call here to remember. The memory of Christ's sacrifice can get pushed to the back of our minds where we don't even really think about it. It's times like this where we bring that back to the front and we remember this amazing story. We think about it. We ponder on it. We dwell on it. We marvel in it. We revel in it. And then we humbly thank God for it. And we need times like this. This do in remembrance of me. There's so much here in this passage. It's rich. I think it's time to move forward and go ahead and partake of the elements that we have before us. We understand the picture. We understand the symbolism. We understand why we do what we're doing. Now it's time to just take some time and think about it and ponder it and remember it. So I'm going to ask Diana if she'd come to the piano. I'm going to ask our men if they would come forward here as well. They'll be assisting us in passing out the elements.